decades ago, when in the 60s and 70s, when the American culture was in upheaval, much like today, Francis Schaeffer winsomely and warmly spoke up. He showed how the Bible, focused on Jesus and a Christian worldview, was the answer to society's ills, and he injected courage into the hearts and lives of countless Christians. This week, I started reading one of his classics called The God Who Is There, and a sentence or two arrested my attention, and I wanted to share it with you. He said, when we, speaking of Christians, when we understand our calling, it is not only true, but beautiful, and it should be exciting. It's hard to understand how an orthodox, evangelical, Bible-believing Christian, that's us, can fail to be excited. The answers in the realm of the intellect should make us overwhelmingly excited. But more than this, we return to a personal relationship with God who is there. If we are unexcited Christians, we should go back and see what's wrong. And I thought, I wonder what's wrong with me when I read that. Am I a Christian? Absolutely. Am I a pastor? Yes. Am I excited? Am I excited about the fact that I am in the household of the Lord? Am I excited with the fact that Jesus is my Savior and God is my Father? Not enough. Or am I going through the motions? Am I just existing. Sure, there are times that I'm excited, but there's a lot of times, if I'm honest, I'm just living. I don't think I'm the only one. I need to be more excited, and I think you probably do too. I need to be more excited, and I think you probably do too, when it comes to our relationship, our mutual relationship with the Lord. Hosea 11 gives us reasons, a reason, to be excited as Christian this morning, and it's the love of God. Today we're going to see how the love of God is different, unique, utterly singular than any sort of love that we've ever experienced. It's not just how He loves it's who he loves. The point of Hosea chapter 11 is this. God loves the undeserving. God loves the unworthy. God loves the unlovely. God loves those who do not deserve it. Now this passage, Hosea chapter 11, biblical scholars call one of the most unique passages in all of the Bible. Because in this passage, we get a peek into the heart of God. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 11. If you have a Bible, follow along with me. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my, by my arms, but they did not know that I 
healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma and treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, I ask that you would help us here today. Lord, I pray you would help us to be excited at the prospect of your love for us. Lord, it's one thing to know about your love. It's another thing to read about your love. And it's still another thing to be excited about your love. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be excited. I pray that we would be a people who are taken with you and shake our heads and say, why? Why does the Lord love me like he does? Lord, that only happens, that only happens, that can only happen through you and your word. And I ask that you would visit us this morning with your word, Lord, with the power of your word, in in, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We see two snapshots of his love. First, we see his love compared to a father. We see his love, God's love, like a father. Did you see the language that we see in verse 1? Verse 1, we read, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Now, this is kind of unexpected through, the, through Hosea. We, at the beginning in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the, fo- the story was focused on Hosea and his wife Gomer, and how Hosea, um, through his marriage and the birth of his children, Uh, was speaking of announcing God's displeasure because of Israel's unrepentance and their worship of of other false gods. The Lord used Hosea as a mouthpiece, and the nation did not listen. Now, we can be tempted to say, okay, you know what? The Lord is just fed up and irritated. He's exasperated, and he's just like, I'm done. I'm done. You, I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and none of you are listening, so I'm done. But instead, what the Lord does is he pulls out the photo album, and he remembers back. He remembers back to when Israel was a child. Look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. He sees Israel. He personifies Israel as 
his son. And he looks back into the corridors of time and he sees this child in the desert with no one to protect him, with no one to watch out for him, with no one to feed him or protect him or clothe him. He was an orphan lost in the wilderness and God loved him. His heart went out like a father to Israel. The Lord saw Israel trapped and imprisoned in Egypt, and he loved him. And he sent Moses, and we have the Exodus story. God did this not because it was the right thing to do, but because he loved Israel. He made this orphan country his son. You see that? He adopted this orphan country as his own. He brought Israel into his family. And the tragedy was that the more he expressed his love, the more they ran away. Look at verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. Where did they go? They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. They worshipped false gods. Israel ran off again and again and again to revere, worship, and serve other gods so that they might have a good crop, a lot of children, and their stables full. And here's God looking back saying, I love them. And he even gets more tender in verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. Any father, any father of any age remembers the first steps of his children. I can recall vividly, I can recall vividly standing on the couch, my son who's now 18, he, I, he, I wasn't standing on the couch, that would be a bad example, S- sitting by the couch, my son holding on, he's 18 now, so it's a very different time, but he's holding on to the couch as just a 10-month-old. And I got on my knees, put my arms out, and said, come here, buddy. And he took slow, toddling, unsure, wobbly steps. And he came to me. And I hugged him, and I picked him up. And I said, great job. Well done. You can walk. I remember times when all of my kids, when they skinned their knee or bumped their head, had some kind of injury, they would run to me crying, and I would pick them up and say, it'll be okay. Come here. It's all right. I asked, what happened? And they would tell me through tears and sobs. The Lord remembers these same things about his son, Israel. And Israel, what did they do? They turned away. They turned away. They went another way. Though the Lord led them with kindness, though he engulfed them in love, what, God, what they did was they went away. God blessed them with healing and love, and he was, he was there for them. And what did they do? They ran away. Verse 7, my people, he says, are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. He's saying because they haven't repented, because they haven't returned, because they serve the Baals, 
they will be punished because of their waywardness. Now, you would think at this point, he's just angry and he's lashing out, but, but we see another side. We see his love yet more as we see first a father's love and now we see a love like no other. As the Lord contemplates their apostasy, we get a glimpse of the heart of God. Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are two small villages that were near Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. See what he's asking? How can I destroy you like I destroyed Adma and Zeboim? How does God respond? He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. As he considers giving them up over to their own desires, as he considers saying to, the, to them, let the bales protect you if, they lo- if you love them so much, his heart is conflicted. It's what they deserve. It's what they've been working toward. But he does not want to give them what they deserve. His heart is broken when he contemplates giving them over. How can I do this, he says. In all the pages of Scripture, we're not often invited to look into the heart of the Lord. And I wish I had words and vocabulary to explain how remarkable this is. God, who is high above all things. God, who is sovereign over all things. God, who holds all things together, who stands outside of time, is heartbroken at the waywardness of his people. Biblical scholars tell us that for God to be God, he must be independent, meaning he must not need anything from anyone because if he needed anything from anyone, he would not be God. God comes from nowhere. He just exists. There was no nothing before God. God there was never a time that God was not. God exists. Everything in all creation comes from somewhere. Every particle of dust, every star, every drop of water, every flower petal, every person comes from somewhere, but not God. God just is. And this God, who stands outside of time and space, contemplates giving people what they deserve, and his heart recoils. That's not what I would expect. That's not what I would expect. And so God purposes to do something different. Look at verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. For I am God and not a man. See, it's this in this spot, I'm grateful God is not like me. I give people what they deserve or what I think they deserve. That's the way our world works. But not God. God is God and He's not a man. Instead of giving Israel what, he, what, he, what they deserved, he, His heart recoils inside himself. He is heartbroken with the love he has for them. The reason the Lord purposes not to destroy them utterly and completely is because he is God and not 
a man. His people deserve destruction and annihilation and destruction. Instead, instead, he says, I won't utterly destroy them. And then he gives a promise in verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. That's not in fear, but in awe. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The Lord purposes, because of his love, to restore them, to restore his people. Now, there's one problem with this verse in verse 11. When the Lord promises to return them to their homes, there is no record of the northern kingdom ever returning from Assyria. They were utterly destroyed. This isn't like the Babylonian exile where the people came back 140 years later. Something else is going on here. There's a promise here of something greater than just the northern kingdom. The Lord is speaking to the northern kingdom, but he's also speaking to others as well. And we know this because we see how Matthew uses Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Matthew, in in Matthew chapter 2, quotes verse 1 directly. He says this, now when they had departed, speaking of Joseph and Mary, behold, or uh, speaking of um, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Which prophet? Hosea. Look at verse 1. I'm going to read from Matthew, but you look at verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. So who's Hosea talking about? Israel or Jesus? What gives? Hosea is clearly talking about the Son of God, Israel, And yet Matthew shows us that there's something else going on in this story. Matthew is asking us to see something different that Hosea did not see. What Matthew is asking us to do is to see Jesus in this picture here of Hosea. God calls calls the nation of Israel His Son. He calls Jesus Christ His Son. Now, What we're invited to do is to determine, compare the difference. To compare the difference between the Son, Israel, and the Son, Jesus. Tell me if this applies to Jesus in verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. No. No. Jesus, not Jesus. Jesus was always close to the Father. In fact, He awoke early to go out and be by Himself and be with the Father. He was always with the Father. Israel, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Jesus never once, never once trusted in or worshipped or sacrificed to anything other than God. 
God lavished love on Israel and they ran and ran and ran. Jesus, He was always with His Father. He did the will of the Father at every turn. Israel didn't care that the Lord healed them. Jesus knew that, he, that he, he, was, he knew he was utterly dependent upon the Lord. Israel was faithless. In fact, we're like Israel. We're faithless. We, we fall short. We're flawed. They were broken. And yet the father cries out, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? You know what's remarkable? Nowhere in any pages of Scripture do we read something like that for the other son, Jesus Christ. Nowhere. God, his heart's broken over the northern kingdom, and it's a picture of his broken heart for all of humanity. And he says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? The question that should jump into our minds is this. Why don't we read that about his attitude toward Jesus? Why? Why does the Father's heart not recoil at the destruction he wrought upon Jesus? We all know the story that Jesus came to die. We know the story so well that we neglect to see how incredible and unlikely and remarkable this story is. Jesus was our substitute. Why don't we read anywhere in the Bible, how can I give you up, O Jesus? How can I hand you over, O my son? We should, and we don't. We don't. It's nowhere in the pages of Scripture. Sure, the Father was pleased with the Son, and He announced it at the baptism when He thunders from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But at the same time, we read this in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. Now, if there's any Son that's deserving to be put to grief, it's not Jesus. It's Israel. But Israel, he says, how can I give you up? If there's anybody who deserves to be put to grief, it's not Jesus, it's us. And we can hear an echo of the heartbreak of the Lord. How can I hand you over? We're just like Israel. We wander, we run, we worship blessings instead of the one who gives the blessings. We, we sacrifice and serve the bales of money, ease, leisure, relationship. And yet we go unpunished. And the son? Destroyed. The father crushed him. He crushed him. He crushed him. And the son didn't deserve it. But we read in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, he, being Jesus, made, or being God, made him to be sin, being Jesus, who knew no sin, that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see, Jesus was the son that Israel never was. He loved his father. He worshipped his father. He walked with his father. He prayed to his father. He trusted his father. He leaned on his father. 
And in his hour of need, he cried out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know the answer? Because God loves the undeserving. (laughs) That's the answer. That's the answer. If there's anyone that God should not have executed his burning judgment against. It was Jesus Christ. But the one that he did execute his burning judgment against was Jesus Christ. Was Jesus guilty? No. Were we guilty? Yes. Was Israel guilty? Yes. And yet, here we see the Son of God hanging on the cross and the Lord God himself executing his burning anger against his Son for sins he did not commit, but for sins that we committed. Why? Because God loves the undeserving, the unworthy, the unlovely. This is the kind of love that we don't see. And this is the kind of love that should make us excited to be Christians. This sort of love is the kind of love that as we look at the difference between how God treated His Son and how God treats us, you have to ask, why? This doesn't make sense. is going on the father treated the son as if he were responsible for our every sin the father burned with anger toward the son as if he were responsible for our every sin the father never cried out how can I give you up how can I hand you over Instead, the son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because of love. See, this is the kind of love that we have received as Christians that doesn't make sense. See, one of the reasons, the reason we should be excited about this kind of love is that we have been given a love that we don't deserve. Think about it this way. If someone is stubbornly refusing to do something, maybe you, uh, you're interacting, somebody in your life is stubborn, and they won't either do what you want or do what's right or whatever, and they're stubborn. When I interact with stubborn people, I'm apt to get frustrated and angry and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. But, but the Lord is different. He is God and not a man. And the Lord says, to, in the face of stubbornness, He says, I love you. What? Who deserved kindness from the Father? Me? No. You? No. Jesus? Yes. Who received kindness? Me? Yes. You? Yes. Jesus? No. God loves the unworthy and the undeserving and the unlovely. And we can't explain why. And that should excite us. Some mysteries are difficult confusing. Make us scratch our heads. This is a mystery 
This is a mystery that should make us excited. One of the many things that's wrong with me is that I'm not excited enough by this love that I can't explain. This love, for me, doesn't excite me enough. The Lord has treated us, Christian, better than his son. Why? For love. For love. Because God loves the undeserving, the unworthy, and the unlovely. God loves us. Can't explain it. Can't dissect it. Can't catalog it. There's no category for this. But it's true. It's true. What's the effect of that love? Verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. See, the effect of love is that we follow the Lord. We want to follow, Christians, we want to follow the Lord because he loves us like this. See, we don't follow the Lord because we're afraid to be punished. If you are following the Lord because you're afraid of punishment, that's not going to keep you close. That's not going to work long term. You don't, no one ever was saved because, only because they're afraid of hell. God, the Father, has this kind of love, and yet we're going to follow him. We read, he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. We've heard that roar in Christ. We've responded with awe to God. And one day, He will take them, he will return them, us, to our real home with him. One day, we're going to hear, as it says in Revelation, we're going to hear the announcement that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And we're going to think, why? Because he loves us. See, it's possible to know that the Lord loves you without being excited. Oh, may we be excited. May we recognize that this kind of otherworldly love is ours in Christ because what we have is a Father who loves us despite our sin. We have a Father who loves us despite our waywardness. We have a Father who loves us despite our flaws. We have a Father who loves us despite everything that's wrong with us. What we have is a Father who always loves the unlovely. And we are those people, and yet we have the love of God forever. That's exciting. That's enthralling. That's amazing. But that's the nature of God's love 
for us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would excite us all. It's easy to just go through the motions, to pray prayers because it's what we should do, to sing on Sundays because it's what we should do, to read our Bibles because it's what we should do. Lord, I want more. I want more personally, and I want more for us as a church. I want to be excited. I want to be excited at the prospect of your love for me. I want to shake my head in wonder and think, why? Why would God love a a stubborn cuss like me? I pray, Lord, that we would be excited with that love. I pray that that love would draw us closer to you. I pray that that love would be a love that we never get over. I pray that you would, where, where there's something wrong, Lord, where we've taken you for granted, where we've not thought about you, where you've considered other things more important, I pray you would shake us and wake us up. God loves us, and that's all that matters. That's literally all that matters. And Lord, I pray that we would be a grateful people who give you our lives. Not because it's a repayment of any kind, but because we want to be close to the one who loves us. We want to do the will of the one who loves us. We want to be with this one who loves us. And so, Lord, I pray you would I pray you would ripple. There would be waves rippling through our church of excitement. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.